Hello. Before we get started on episode three, I just wanted to say a big thank you to everyone who's listened so far, everybody who's sent me comments and suggestions and feedback. Keep it all coming. Um, I'm glad that people are listening to this. I'm glad that people are enjoying this and glad that this is resonating with people. If you know anybody else who um, you think would enjoy this, then please do uh, pass on the link. Um, send them the link to the Facebook page. Ask them to give it a listen. Um, another thing to say is it's always been in my plan for this little podcast that I'm going to do a few episodes on my own to get the tone and the style and, and, and to get a bit of background. And then my plan is to, to turn this into a two-hander. So quite a few of the episodes down the line will have me in conversation with somebody else. I've already got a few people who've said that they'd like to do that. But if that's something that you'd like to do, then um, give me a shout and let me know. You don't have to be physically able to get to either Essex or London to do it. We can certainly do these things remotely. Um, you don't have to worry about anything other than talking and being yourself. So please let me know if you're interested. On that score, no more waffle from me. Let's get on with episode three. Last time, we talked about uh, the nursery in Port Sunlight and how it may or may not have existed. And actually, I've got a little bit more evidence that it did exist. After the last episode was published, I spoke to my mum's sister, who tells me that she does indeed remember the gym building being where I thought it was and does indeed remember there being kids groups there. So it's perfectly possible that's where I did go to nursery. She also said it was where the McFisheries shop was. Now, McFisheries has not a word that I have heard for many, many years. And I'm not going to go into it now, but Google it. It's kind of interesting. Lord Leverhulme had this um, fisheries business called McFisheries. Kind of interesting. Give it a Google. But moving on from the nursery that did exist, I went on to primary school. I mean, back then it was an infant school and a junior school. And whilst I was there, it changed governance to become a primary school. But I didn't really know what that meant. And even now, I'm not entirely sure. The village of Port Sunlight is very pretty. It was built around the turn of the 19th into the 20th century. And it was built to be the vision of an English country village. It was built on marshy land next to the factory, but it was built with everything that the workers would need and the workers would be the people living there. It was built with a church and a school and social clubs for the men and for the women and amenities, so shops and post office and library and all sorts of other things. It was built very much as a Disneyland version of a village. It was built to be pretty. It was designed to be pretty. It didn't become pretty with age. And so the church looks the picture you'd imagine a country church to look, but it's nowhere near as old as it looks. And the school, the school is a product of its time. It looks like a Victorian school building. It's red brick. It has sloping roofs. It has tall windows in the classrooms. And on top, it has a bell tower. Now, when I was there as a kid, we try to scare each other with stories of how the bell tower was obviously haunted. I think it was just one of these things that kids did to outdo each other. You know, have you seen the ghost? Or oh, I've seen the ghost. Have you seen the ghost? I never saw anything in there. My dad used to tell me that there were bats living in there, but I never even saw those. 
I saw them once or twice flying around over the boating lake, but never saw them in the school tower. But the infant school was on the right, the junior school on the left. The infant school playground was at ground level, and for some reason the junior school playground was, was below ground level. Now, I don't know whether there was a natural dip in the land that was turned into the playground. I mean, people... I remember people saying it was to control the noise of the children to stop it carrying. And I, I thought, well, OK, but why only sink one of them into the ground? It was kind of strange. There were steps down and there was a slope down. And underneath that part of the school was like a colonnade of arches with uh, changing rooms in there and storerooms and various other things. My first teacher at, at Church Drive was called Mrs. Sims. She was before Mrs. Jones. Mrs. Sims was tall. But then again, everybody's tall when you're four years old. She was tall and she had a bun on top of her head. Um, I, that's her hair, not, not some kind of pastry. Obviously, that would be weird. Um, I don't remember what we did in our first year. The only thing I can remember is that we used to do drawing. Now, we didn't do that every day. If I'd been drawing every day, I'd be better at drawing now than I am. We used to draw something in our exercise book and Mrs Sims would look at it and ask us what it was and we'd tell her and she'd very neatly write out below what it was and then we'd copy that out in our own nascent handwriting. I, I remember what we used to do is grab all of the coloured pencils, grab them in a little fist and just swipe them back and forth across the page until it was covered in the most array of colours and we'd say it's a bonfire and then she'd Right, it's a bonfire, and we copy bonfire. Bonfire was one of the first words I could spell. But I don't think we did that every day, and I certainly don't think we drew bonfires every day. We probably did singing and playing games and basic maths and English. We must have done all that. I just don't remember it. The arrangement back then was that my dad went off to work. I lived with my dad, and he'd go off to work, so I'd get dropped off at my grandparents, my maternal grandparents, as it happens, before school, I'd go back there after school and then my dad would pick me up on his way home from work and we'd go to the shops and buy stuff for tea. So I spent a lot of time with my grandparents. My granddad especially used to get involved in what I was doing at school and I remember he helped me cheat at a sunflower competition. Now every year the kids would be given a sunflower seed. We'd just be given one and we'd take it home and the idea is that we pot it up in the garden or a pot or, or whatever and then whoever grew the tallest one would win the competition. Great. I don't understand why everybody didn't cheat. I mean, this was back in the late 70s. Digital cameras were a long way in the future. You know, a camera was something where you took the photos and then you sent them off to Boots or you took them to your local chemist and then they came back a few weeks later having been developed. So I'm not sure how we would prove the height of the sunflowers, but... That's not how we cheated. That's far too obvious. Now, my granddad had an aviary in the garden. He'd had one there for as long as I can remember. And once I got old enough, I started to get involved in the redesign and the building and, and various other aspects of it. He often had birds escape despite our best efforts. And I remember one of his schemes was that he'd put a cage out in the garden with a, with a run of string attached to the door going back through the cage and then out and into the house and he'd sit there for hours sometimes day on day waiting for the escaped bird to come back and into the cage for the food and then as soon as it's in the cage he'd pull the string the door would close and he'd have the bird back and you know it worked he got the birds back but 
the birds had bird seed and they had sacks of sunflower seed. So when I got the one sunflower seed from school, we weren't just going to plant the one, did we? No, we'd plant as many as we could fit into the patch at the back of the garden and we'd claim the highest. I remember the sunflowers being really tall, certainly taller than four-year-old me, but I remember them being taller than adults with, with sunflower heads like dinner plates. I also remember the sunflower heads were full of earwigs. Now, I've no idea whether there was one particular year when there were a lot of earwigs and that stuck in my mind. But I, I have a memory of earwigs crawling all over the centre of the flower. Where the seeds form, the centre of the flower becomes the seeds arranged in a lovely pattern. And there were earwigs crawling all over it. Now, I don't like earwigs. I'm generally fine with creepy crawlies. Spiders don't particularly bother me. But earwigs? Mm, no, thank you. Do you know... I was recently out in the garden here out in Essex and I was feeding the birds and we have sunflower seeds to feed the birds out here. We don't have an aviary, but to feed the wild birds. And it struck me that there were earwigs in there. Now I've Googled and I have found no evidence of earwigs particularly liking to eat bird seed, but maybe there's something in this. Maybe earwigs like sunflower seeds. Now I don't entirely know how this is going to help me avoid earwigs. I mean, maybe I could bait some traps with sunflower seeds. I don't know. But anyway, I find it interesting. Maybe I've stumbled onto something here. Earwigs, horrible little things. Centipedes, slightly bigger, but still horrible. Now, I don't know whether that's because centipedes are a bit like long earwigs. It's like if you put more bits in the middle of an earwig, what you get to centipede. And we have a lot of centipedes at home in London. We've got a couple of roof gardens in London and there's no obvious connection between them for small creatures. People can go through the door and through the house, but for a centipede, that's not really an option. I mean, they can't reach the handle for a start. So we have the centipede garden and the spider garden. Now in the spider garden, there's lots of spiders and in the centipede garden, there's lots of centipedes. And I've never seen a spider in the centipede garden and never seen a centipede in the spider garden. So obviously at some point we've introduced these predators to the environment and they've occupied the niche and grown. I still don't like picking up rocks in the centipede garden. Too many legs. It's like a, a knot of centipedes untangles itself and scrabbles out in all directions. Oh, no, thank you. You know, the other thing I don't like is earthworms. I remember my granddad once chasing me round the garden with one and I don't think I was particularly frightened of the worm. I think I was just it was an unpleasant situation and since then I don't really like them. I mean, I'm not phobic of them and phobias are something we'll come back to in the future, I'm sure, but I don't think I'm phobic of anything. I don't even think I'm phobic of earwigs. I don't like them, but I'm not phobic of them. Anyway, when he wasn't chasing me around the garden with worms or helping me to cheat at school competitions, my granddad got involved in other school bits and pieces as well. We went over to the Garden Festival site in Liverpool on a school trip. Now, the Garden Festival, I don't know whether it still happens, but it was in Liverpool in the early to mid-80s, and they took a piece of land and built buildings, some of which are still there. If you drive from Liverpool Airport on one of the routes you go into the centre of Liverpool, you go through the site and you can see some of the buildings still there and some of the layout. It was quite grand. There were gardens from all over the world with lakes and waterfalls and and all sorts of things. And 
I remember going quite a few times as a kid. I remember one other visit. Um, we went to a, a comedy magic show. And I remember um, I was sitting there and they got a kid up on stage to kind of join in with the show. And I remember that part of it was that the kid had to change his shirt to wear a special gardening shirt. And then the joke at the back was he won the competition and he won a shirt and he got his shirt back. And I remember even at that young age, and I must have been eight or nine at that point, thinking, oh, I am so glad that wasn't me because I wouldn't want to take my shirt off in front of people. And I find that interesting that that, that memories come back to me because... I know I was talking last time about not knowing what age that body shame came around, but I guess we now know it was there by the age of eight or nine. But anyway, none of that on this visit. We've gone with the school and they wanted chaperones to take groups of kids. And my granddad volunteered and he had a small group of me and my friends. And when we were there, we um, saw Roland Rat. Now, if Roland Rat doesn't mean anything to you, I'm going to try to explain. Roland Rat was an... 80s TV personality that was an anthropomorphic, small person-sized rat who had Kevin the gerbil as a friend and I think probably some others I've forgotten as well. Now it sounds weird and it was weird, but it's so ingrained in the psyche it doesn't feel weird when I remember it. I remember I was standing next to him and was filmed for, I think it would have been TVAM at the time. Um, first time I'd ever been on TV. Not that I've been on TV much, but the first time. I wasn't much of a performer. I mean, I, I back at school, we, we'd learned how to play the recorder. Uh, me and three girls had you know, shown some musical ability and so been given a recorder and taught how to play the scale of C major and then we were playing along with hymns in school. I remember I didn't like standing up in front of people to perform, so I'd quite often find an excuse to be sitting amongst the other kids trying to shy away and shrink myself so the teacher wouldn't see me and ask me why I wasn't playing or make me go up to the front. And I, there was a desire in me to go and be at the front and play, but equally there was something saying, no, you can't do that. And I remember saying to myself, I'll go up there for the next song. I'll go up there for the next song. I never did. I mean, after the recorder came the violin, I mean, it must have been something that was drawing me to play instruments that sound truly awful. I mean, there's some instruments, like a piano. You sit down, you pick out a tune on the piano, it sounds nice. You have to get really good at a recorder before it sounds nice. And the same's kind of true of a violin, it can sound truly awful. But I didn't have the option not performing when I was in the nativity play. Now, weirdly, I dug out a photo the other day of the cast of the Nativity play at school and I wasn't playing Joseph. I was in my normal school uniform sitting at the front and somebody else was playing Joseph. Now, it could have been a different year, but in my mind, I was Joseph. I remember we had read-throughs. This was taken seriously. We had read-throughs of the script. And I remember when a teacher was running my part with, with Mary, I remember correcting the teacher because she got one of my lines wrong. I never had a problem learning lines. I mean, I've no idea what the nativity was actually like, but I can probably guess that it was Mary and Joseph would walk with a donkey made out of cardboard while everybody was singing Little Donkey and somebody was clinking together two coconut shells. I'm glad this was the days before video cameras. I mean, I'm sure it was fine. I'm sure the parents loved it, but oh, I don't want to see that again. 
And the music teacher at school was a guy called Mr Sexton. Now, I remember, the one thing I remember about him was that people said he was gay. I don't know where that come from, and I can't even remember which people said that, but I remember it being talked about in hushed tones. It wasn't explicitly said that being gay was a bad thing, but it was a thing that you talked about in hushed tones that you didn't really mention. Now, bear in mind, I was very young at the time. I had no idea what the word gay meant, but I got the idea that that was something about him that he wouldn't want people knowing. I had no idea whether he was gay or not. I do remember, though, we once had an orchestra come and visit the school and they played this joke where they, they asked for a volunteer to pretend to conduct and then they would deliberately play badly and then all the kids would giggle because this teacher had failed and it's, you know, the kind of, oh, look, the teacher's being silly thing. And I remember I didn't enjoy it. Even back then, there was something in me thought, why are you humiliating him? He's a music teacher. I really didn't enjoy it. And even now it makes me feel uncomfortable. I don't remember him being uncomfortable with it. I think he was in on the joke and quite happy. But I remember for me, that humour didn't work. I mean, playing musical instruments back then, I was, I was much better at learning things by rote than I was learning things by feeling. So I could play the recorder because I could remember where to put my fingers to make each note. And I could play the violin because back then you had little pencil marks on it. So you knew where to put your fingers to play the notes. I was also really good at spelling tests. I remember that I learned how to spell the words jigsaw and square. And I remember it was a party trick of mine to spell them over and over again to people, to the same people. It's an interesting party trick. I mean, maybe I should go on Britain's Got Talent. They do, don't they? Have you seen those spelling bees in America? They tend to spell things more complex than jigsaw and square, though. But anyway, there were loads of these spelling tests. I remember there was one that was about silent initial letters of words. And I remember that gnarled was one of the words. I've never forgotten how to spell it. I don't think I knew what it meant. I knew it had something to do with trees. But beyond that, I'm not sure I knew what it meant. And another one we learnt was gnomon. Now... What kid under the age of 10 needs to know what a gnomon is? For those who don't know, and I'm sure there are some people, it's the little stick thing in the middle of a sundial that casts the shadow. Why do we need a word for that? Why can't we just call it sundial stick? That would work. Anyway, I switched from the recorder to the violin. I was still doing that by rote. And one thing that used to bother me about it was that when I was going to school my granddad would carry my violin for me that's not what bothered me what bothered me was he would carry it the wrong way around he would carry it with the pointy bit facing backwards and something in that annoyed annoyed's the wrong word something in me felt wrong it's still something I have now I remember a few years ago we were on holiday and I was hanging washing out on a line which is not something I regularly do here at home and I remember getting really, really concerned because I was having to make sure that every pair of socks I put on the line, the two socks in the pair, were hung up with an identical set of pegs. I mean, don't get me started on the idea of wearing odd socks. It's not that I think it's untidy or neat. I just couldn't do it. But the violin, carry the right way round, of course, was one of the things that went to secondary school with me. Now... Secondary school up on the Wirral, we did the 11 plus. This was a thing that had died out in most of the rest of the country, but some areas kept it back. And the idea was that you took an exam and then it decided whether you went to the grammar school or you went to the comprehensive school. 
Now, I was academically quite good, if you can call it academic back then. And so I think it was assumed I would pass and go to the grammar school. It was assumed a few other people would pass as well who didn't. And in the end, I was the only boy that passed. There were three girls and me. The other parents didn't all react too brilliantly. Um, I remember there was parents of one of my friends at school and we'd been quite good friends. You know, we'd go around each other's houses and whatever. And um, as far as I know, she stopped talking to my family when her son didn't pass. One of the others, she sent her son to the local private school, but that's what she said she was going to do if he didn't pass the 11 plus. Anyway, I went to Wirral Grammar School. So, Wirral Grammar School is a weird place. Well, was. I don't know where it is now. I went to look at the website the other day, actually. There's still quite a few members of staff there, including the PE teacher. But it had a science block built and whatever. But it still looks fundamentally the same. It is an austere brick-built school building. I was put into class 1H. H for Hodgson. We had four houses and we knew our house in advance and that affected the colour of stripe we had on our tie and Hodgson was green. I remember my granddad drove us um, for a while and he would pick up the three girls as well and offer them a lift up to the school. And I remember on the very first day I had to run into one of their houses to clean themselves up because I was actually sick with the nerves of going to a new school. I guess that's a foretaste of what was to come. Back then, I could take to new groups quite easily. But there was something in me that made me really nervous. I mean, the idea that my granddad was driving us every day, that didn't last too long because once we got into the schools and the girls and boys schools were separate. So we started to talk to new people and make new friends. And actually, our primary school allegiance wasn't what held us together anymore. We had new friends. So my granddad driving us fizzled down to three of us, then two of us. And eventually it fizzled out completely. He still used to drive me some of the time, but he didn't pick anyone else up. The school had a real sense of superiority. We did Latin. We didn't play football, we played rugby. I guess from inside, this felt rewarding. This felt like we, we, are, we are doing well. We are being academic. I guess from outside, this would have seemed quite elitist. And I remember one guy was badly behaved at Wirral Grammar and sent to the comprehensive school and that was the that was the worst punishment you could have. I don't remember anybody ever coming the other way. I started secondary school and I think looking back with hindsight I didn't really have any emotional intelligence at that point. I don't know if other people do but I certainly didn't. I didn't have subtlety to my ability to learn. Subjects that were logical were easy. Maths easy French where you're just learning lists of words and putting them together. Same with German, same with Latin, certainly with chemistry and physics. Those things were easy. The subjects I found really hard were humanities. I, I didn't yet have the ability to spot subtext in a book. I didn't have the ability to understand art. I was reading a lot of books. My mum's always been an avid reader and I've had books from as young as I've been able to hold one and I read a lot and nowadays I am a capable reader but back then I wasn't. I couldn't read between the lines. I, I didn't like subtext. I didn't like things not to be explicitly laid out in books. School 
wasn't an easy time for me. It wasn't a happy time. Some people talk about school days as if they were happy and mine weren't. I guess I was an easy target. I was tall. I was ungainly. I didn't do sport. I was overweight. I was academically top of the class. Certainly in those subjects where learning lists of things is what you could do. And so it's easy to shoot somebody down. I used to get mocked for everything I got wrong. You know, I remember once being laughed at an entire French class because I got 15 out of 16 in a mock GCSE. I was supposed to get 16. I never broke the rules. I was never a badly behaved kid in that sense. I certainly had what you'd now describe as behavioural issues and things, but they, they were much more complicated than simply talking in class and refusing to turn up. The school reputation was built on academic success, academic success and rugby. And I was never good at rugby, but I was academically good. And so that's what got me through. That's what got me through with the teachers. That's what I had to build on. But I never really made friends. I never really learned how to socialise with people. I'd go into school, I'd learn everything that was thrown at me and I would regurgitate it enough to pass exams and that's what I did. The school's very traditional. It looks very traditional and the teaching was very traditional. The only smallest nod to modernity was the tower block between the two schools. Now this, not much of a tower block, it was three storeys high. I mean, that's actually taller than the school, but only just because the school had very high ceilings. But this new block in the middle had several floors and it was shared with the girls' school. So they had one floor, we had another, and the top floor was shared. We never met the girls. We had separate staircases and the top floor was shared, but there was a wall down the middle cutting the corridor in half. So we, we would have to walk down this very narrow corridor to get to the art rooms. The only other places the girls and boys schools joined was the common room doors, the sixth form common room doors. There was a set of big bifold doors between the two common rooms and apparently they could be opened so the two sets of sixth formers could mingle, but I never saw them opened. Back up on the top floor of the tower block was art. Now, I could probably still draw you a bonfire with a load of coloured pencils, but I am not a visual artist. I learned how to draw one thing, and that wasn't at school. That was through watching Tony Hart on the telly. He did this drawing with a charcoal pencil of a, of a church on a little hill with, with trees behind it and little gravestones and a path and... I can still reproduce that actually pretty well, but I can't do anything else. I remember in art one day, I'd drawn a toy dog. In fact, I don't think I'd even drawn the toy dog. I think we'd been given a printout of the outline of a toy and we had to shade it in. And I remember I got the pencil and I coloured it in and I took it over to the teacher and she said, well, why have you coloured all that in? Do it like this, do it like this to give it contours or whatever. So she took a rubber and she rubbed out most of what I'd done and... Um, I took it back to my desk and I coloured it all back in again. I was never very good at subtlety. The art teachers, there were two of them, although I really can't remember ever seeing the other one. There were two art classrooms up there and, and we used to see Mrs Crabtree, who 
was the art teacher who dealt with the younger kids. And I, I don't think the ones who are particularly good at art. But I never saw the art teacher. I can't even remember who she was. I think she did A-level and people who could actually do art. And Mrs. Crabtree did the people who were just there to do a bit of finger painting. And Mrs. Crabtree, in my memory, was a typical art teacher. Flowing, floaty dresses and lots of bangles and long, flowing, wild, blonde hair. You know, I'm starting to wonder, is she called Mrs. Crabtree or am I getting slightly mixed up with Mrs. Crabapple in The Simpsons? Anyway, whatever she was called, Mrs. Crabtree, typical art teacher. I never saw her with the other teachers. It's like she lived in a world of her own up there. I never saw her in the staff room or in the corridors or taking part in fire drill duties with the other teachers. She seemed to, to sit apart. You know... Sitting apart from the others, up at the top of the tower block, and very floaty. Am I thinking of Sybil Trelawney from the Harry Potter films? Hmm. But yeah, never any good at art. I was also never one of the cool kids. I've been many things in my life. I don't think I've ever been cool. I don't think I could be cool. I think if I tried to be cool, it would just be frankly embarrassing. I fitted in with, I guess, the group you would call the nerdy outsiders. We were kind of, we were not sporty. We were not intellectual. We could remember things and we liked physics and we liked facts and we liked maths. I hung around with those guys and we went to various days out. We went to Liverpool University for a physics day out. We went on a longer day out on the school minibus. I remember that whichever teacher it was accidentally put petrol into the diesel minibus and we had to cancel the day out and do it again. I remember we also used to do the Maths Olympiads. And these were maths competitions for teams. And you'd go to a local school and you'd be set a maths problem and then you'd have to solve it. And I remember, oh, the worst we ever did. The goal was that you had some pieces of paper of various random sizes and some sellotape and no measuring implements at all. And the pieces of paper weren't A4. They were cut into random sizes. So you didn't know the size of the piece of paper. And the goal was to make a cube which was as close to being 10 by 10 by 10 centimetres as you could make it. Well, I came up with a brilliant plan. And, you know, because I was academically good, all the other kids in the group said, oh, you've got a plan, let's do that. And we did it, and it was terrible. I can still remember it now. I can still picture that bloody cube. But, you know, they were my friends, the close to friends as I had back then. I mean, I think the... There's an elephant in the room here, isn't there? I think the one thing that we're not mentioning is sexuality. And, you know, I hear a lot of LGBT people say that they felt like they didn't fit in at school. They felt like there was something different. They felt like they didn't belong. And, you know, for me, I don't think that was part of it. You know, to be honest, I think that it was years later when I came to develop in the emotional sense and that's when I got the subtlety of text and that I think that's I didn't know what gay was back then I certainly didn't think I was it or anyone else was I, I wasn't even sure what it really meant I mean it was a it was a term that was thrown around but never factually it was an insult you know back then we're talking about the 80s it sounds modern when we say the 80s but actually that's 30 years ago kids didn't come out back then you know, there was a gay character on EastEnders and you'd occasionally read about openly gay people on the news or in the press, but 
I didn't know anybody gay. You know, I don't think I met an openly gay person until I was at university. It just wasn't a thing. So I think for me, I don't think that was part of why I didn't fit in at school. And it's a subject I'm sure we'll come back to in future episodes. But I'm I'm going to park that and say, I don't think that was part of it. I think there was more going on. I think had I been straight, the same things would have played out at school. Now, the word gay was used at school, and never positively, and always in relation to two particular teachers. One of them was the headmaster, and one of them was the music teacher. The word gay was used pejoratively only, and certainly in both of these cases. I mean, there were rumours that they were gay, but we didn't really know what that meant. And the rumours were, they were horrible. We look back on now and there were stories of the headmaster finding excuses to go into the changing rooms, the headmaster taking a drama class where he taught the sixth form students how to walk like a gay man. It was all rubbish, but it was the kind of stuff that was said. I don't think that would be said now, but back then it was. Now, weirdly, I bumped into both of these teachers later in life, separately, in very different circumstances. When I was away at Cambridge, I um, had a friend who lived locally to Port Sunlight. It was somebody who I'd met through mutual friends at Cambridge rather than somebody I knew from school. And he, he was openly gay. And I think he was the first openly gay person I'd ever met. We never had a romantic relationship. We just had a friendship. And I was once on a night out with him. This was back when I used to go on nights out. And we were over in Liverpool in a bar and we actually bumped into the headmaster of the school. He was still the headmaster of the school. I wasn't at the school anymore. Now, you'd think that could be an awkward situation. But it wasn't. We had a chat. He asked me how I was getting on at Cambridge. He took an interest in how I was doing. He he bought me a drink. We had five or ten minutes of chat. And then he went his way and I went mine. And actually, I'm glad that, I'm glad that we had that conversation. He was a really good guy and I remember that when I was waiting for my A-level results and I got them and I, I didn't get quite the grades for Cambridge. Now it's a technicality, I got the A-level grades but on the Cambridge step papers that you need to get in I got things a little the wrong way around. I'd got a top grade in the supposedly harder paper and a third level grade in the supposedly easy paper and it was supposed to be the other way around but we were waiting to find out whether I got in and I remember Mr Tracy being kind. I remember him being helpful, supportive, doing what he could, speaking to the college. And so I was glad I got the opportunity to thank him for that and say, actually, I'm doing well. And that, that's, that's largely down to the work you did in securing me my place. He wasn't embarrassed to be in a gay bar. Why should he be? But I can imagine that back then, being an openly gay school headmaster in the 90s would not have been easy. The other meeting with Mr. Hams was actually quite sad. Now, Mr. Hams was called names that I'm not going to repeat here, but you can imagine. I bumped into him on a train when I lived over in the Midlands. It was from Birmingham down to Worcester and we sat together for 20 minutes. We were chatting about how music was still a part of my life and how him and I told him about Mr. Sexton at the school before and how the music teachers had encouraged me and 
and developed my love of music and that's definitely something we'll come to in a future episode and we didn't really talk about world grammar that much i could see he didn't want to go there i could see that he didn't enjoy it he wasn't in on the joke this wasn't funny to him this was this was horrible and i could see how he didn't look back with much affection at all and I came away from that conversation thinking, I really hope I wasn't part of that. I don't know whether I joined in the name calling amongst other kids. I probably did. Social pressure and lack of knowledge about what I was saying and how hurtful it could be. I probably did. And I really wish I could go back and undo that, but I can't. And that was the lasting feeling I was left with that conversation. It was sad to see him. School for me wasn't a happy time. I don't look back on it with fondness. I'm still recently, well actually recently back in touch with some people I was at school with and it's nice to be in touch with them and actually it turns out as adults we have a lot in common and we're, we're friends and whatever. There's nobody I've continued being friends with from back then. School didn't teach me much about life. It didn't teach me much about how to run my life or how to be mature. If school taught me anything, school taught me how to hide. School taught me how to hide in a crowd of kids so that a teacher wouldn't spot me and call me to the front to make me play recorder. School taught me how to hide from the other kids to make myself less of a target. School taught me how to shrink and how to be quiet and how not to be heard and how not to be noticed. The last time I ever went to that school building was the day after A-level results day. Mr Tracy had made a call to the college in Cambridge and I'd gone up to see how it got and talked to him and basically to get out of the house to stop myself worrying about what would happen if I didn't get into Cambridge. In the end, they did say yes and they took me and I, I left the building and uh, I'd never been back. I've driven back a few times, but I've no desire to go back there. That was a long time ago and it, it's gone. And so, that summer I said my goodbyes and packed up ready to go to Cambridge. Now at this point, you're probably expecting me to say that the next episode is going to be Cambridge. We'll get there, don't worry. But for now, we're going to take a little diversion. That was Anxious Laughter, episode three, written, spoken and produced by me. Dan McNeil. This episode was recorded on the 16th of August 2019.